Welcome everyone to the Georgetown Literary Festival 2021. I am Vidya Muthusamy, and uh, I have with me here today Manash Firak Patacharji. He is a poet, writer, and political science scholar from Jawaharlal Nehru University. He's the author of the book we will be discussing today, "The Town Slowly Empties: On Life and Culture During Lockdown." He has also written "Looking for the Nation Towards Another Idea of India," which was published in 2018, and "Garlid's Tomb and Other Poems," which was published in 2013. His writings, apart from regular contributions to the Wire, have appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, Guernica, World Literature Today, The Hindu, The Indian Express, and among others. He lives in New Delhi and is currently working on his first novel. Manash, an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you uh, so much, Nitya Nadeem, for that introduction, and uh, I'm really uh, very delighted to be here. I'd like to thank uh, Pauline, of course, Pauline Fan, who invited me to be part of uh, the Georgetown Literary Festival, and uh, it's really wonderful to be part of the festival. And right now, it's uh, my pleasure as well to be talking to you. Thank you so much, Nitya. So, Manash, you know, I firstly thoroughly enjoyed your book, and so let me start uh, with a quote. Um, Each of us has the plague within him. No one, no one on earth is free from it, and I know too that we must keep endless watch. On ourselves. This is a quote from the French author Camus, and this is one of many artistic and literary references that Manash draws upon in his deeply personal and undeniably human musings during three weeks of uh, the COVID nineteen lockdown in Delhi in twenty twenty. In the town slowly empties, he uses the pandemic's sudden disruption to human life. As a special opportunity to reckon, not just with the apparent and immediate plague of COVID nineteen, but also with the many antagonisms, discontents, and conundrums of the human experience, it really is a rewarding read. Crash, uh, I'd like to start first with what made you write this book. And you mentioned early on in your journal that you saw the act of personal reflection as an ethical necessity. For that portion of humanity that could enjoy the guilty comforts of home, uh, while there is so much suffering and misery all around as a result of the pandemic, so was was this book an ethical act? Did you feel somehow duty bound to first reflect and then to write for the public? Yeah, this is um, a very. Uh... Very important question uh, in terms of uh, also what I myself was thinking about vis-a-vis the book, even as I was writing it, mm. and uh, like you just pointed out that um, that this question was posed by me, and uh, I of course did not go into um, in the answer on on it. Perhaps the whole book is sort of an answer to so that to that sort of um, uh, uh, a query. um so reflection in itself writing a book in itself of course need not be is not you know necessarily an ethical act uh, but uh, it is true that uh, to address certain aspects uh, of the human condition can perhaps translate into something that we understand as ethical so i would in fact you know uh, now uh, reflecting on what i had thought of and written about then would say that uh, perhaps uh, this book or any book uh, which uh, raises or is concerned about the ethical question uh, uh, would perhaps see it in two ways so one is you know uh, uh, the idea of ethics which i uh, hold my myself uh, is the ethics which is a radical proposal and it is a radical proposal of addressing what is not yet recognized 
uh, or thought of as urgent or necessary and hence important. So it is actually something new that you introduce. Ethics is something new. Uh, this is not about what is already there. So in a way, you know, this is not the ethics that is often understood as a norm, that ethics means norms. I don't understand ethics in that in that manner. For me, ethics is this new radical proposal that is missing in the world. Norms, in fact, for me are often a problem. You know, we of course talk in terms of breaking the norms and all of that, but but then breaking the norms is also part of, you know, part of human nature. Camus, of course, is also one of the proponents of that that kind of, you know, defense of human nature where we can be sort of antisocial, we can be anti-norms, anti-normative, but but what is the ethical then? And the ethical is this, this opening up, this constant questioning and opening up of human possibilities. So, so that's uh, one idea of ethics that I hold on to, uh, which is, you know, if it is duty, like you use the word duty bound, uh, it is a duty of, of, of course, and, it, and even in writing, but it's a duty that we owe to the future. It is a, it is a duty that I would uh, hold that, that ethics holds to the future uh, into something that is not yet, which, which, which is not yet there. So, so that's one idea of ethics. The other idea uh, is simply, uh, you know, what we can call ethical attention, paying ethical attention to certain things, the way we pay medical attention to the ill. We also need to pay perhaps ethical attention to people who uh, who need it uh, in our concern. So, so for instance, during the pandemic, we had certain kind of people facing the brunt of the pandemic, facing the logic of the pandemic, way more than us who were sitting in our rooms and, and, and having the luxury of, of sort of just re reflecting on what is going on. They had to really deal with it, with their uh, bodies uh, right out there in the middle. So, so for all those people who got trapped, so to say, you know, in this whole pandemic situation, it, it was perhaps, you know, um, a sort of ethical necessity to, to pay attention to their lives. And so that is how also perhaps I looked at the writing as a sort of, you know, response, an ethical response to the demands that were there around me that what I, I could sense and read and, and, and see. That's wonderful, Manash. I love that idea, the opening up of human possibility and that being a part of ethics. Um, I also want to ask you about journaling as a medium. I mean, this book is a, is a journal that you wrote during three weeks in 2020 in Delhi uh, during the first COVID lockdown. I wanted to get your thoughts on journaling as a medium of art, reflection and communication especially in the age of social media. Social media is all about micro-blogging and sharing our lives visually and quickly with the rest of the world. And there's a sort of like, a, there's, there's a hyper-intense quality to the communication, which may at times lack depth. And so where does, where does a journal fit in, a public journal fit in, in this landscape? That's a very important question again, uh, Nitya. I mean, uh, we are... Uh, bombarded with writing uh, in our times and often these writings are probably a good measure uh, of uh, what society is facing and feeling and uh, there is an avalanche of this right of this kind of writing in our, in the social media but as we have also uh, noticed uh, along the way that uh, there is also behind the quickness of it a, a certain uh, you know a certain thoughtlessness behind it as well uh, often and also perhaps not uh, enough reflection on the subject on which one is talking so at the level of uh, feelings of course um, i think um, it is often good that people share what what they have experienced and what 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 they really feel uh, out there and and we have learned to you know, come out of our, uh, you know, our, our, our uh, uh, mental sort of uh, blockages, you know, which often perhaps uh, make us, uh, you know, think twice before uh, sharing 
um, our uh, ideas and, and, and sharing our experiences in public, whereas people today are more confident of, of doing that. Uh, that is, uh, in some ways, a good thing. Uh, and yet again, as, as, as we see that uh, because of a certain tendency, the social media to very quickly uh, you know, get meanings out of uh, what, what is said and what is uh, written, the meanings are often lost and, and often the best meanings are really not possible for us. It is taken over by, by, by certain other meanings. So in that sort of a situation, it is true that uh, journaling requires a very, very different kind of approach. Uh, one has to first of all really calm down one has to uh, probably even get away from 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 that whole uh, urgency to share uh, one's experiences and one's thoughts to the outside world immediately so one has to get out of the immediacy of it one has to get out of 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 that sort of an impulse to connect to the world um, right there so so then one is forced to basically think and to reflect and to actually uh, get the sort of difficult luxury if i may say so to 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 take time uh, to to reflect on on what one really wants to uh, um, e express one oneself about uh, the audience here is also important the idea of the audience because often on social media uh, when people try to express them, them themselves with that sort of uh, immediate um uh, in, uh interaction uh the audience is uh, ready made the audience is uh, ready for consumption and you were also sort of you also become part of that culture of consumption with which the social media initiates and it and in, in inspires in, in most people whereas uh in a when when you're journaling you don't really have that ready-made audience in mind you are you 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 are not writing uh, for for that immediate consumption. So it is an it is an audience, of course, because all writing uh, perhaps imagines a sort of audience. There is an absent audience behind all writing, but that audience is uh, not an audience you are sure of. It's it's not an audience you want to please or you want to excite or you want to in, in, incite immediately right uh, so 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 that is an audience that you really beyond a point cannot and and need not worry about or bother about so you in a way you know the writer becomes her own audience uh, and 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 so you 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 write from so that sort of a deep center of uh, of unsurety even insecurity and which is good for writing because writing should uh, not just be something assertive, but also which, which should uh, bring out all the vulnerabilities that uh, you might be facing. So, yeah, so I would say that uh, this uh, process of journaling is um, something where, you know, you immerse yourself in a sort of a much more deeper, longer self-exploration where you do not constrain yourself uh, by this immediate uh you know so, uh, sort of uh, idea of sharing it with an audience which is just waiting to consume what what you're writing so so this time taken uh, the the time itself uh, that that the journal takes because the journal is about time it is about the date it is about the day it is about the passing of of time and and that that quiet slow passing of time is something which exactly the journal wants to uh, sort of capture. And so in that sense, my experience of uh, this book as an act of journaling has been to actually experience that slow time of, of writing without bothering about the audience. That's wonderful, Kanash. And uh, yeah, this, this, you know, and as you, in your journal, immerse yourself in self-exploration, you, uh, explore many themes. And, and what I noticed was there are these antagonistic tensions, these competing notions, these ironies, these uh, plagues, if I may be allowed the liberty to use the term, for every major theme you explore. And I think, I thought one of the things we could do is go through some of the more prominent or arresting themes uh, that, that I found in your book. And one of the 
one of the biggest themes that's woven and threaded throughout your writing during these weeks is this tension between nature and modernity. And, and nature is, you know, kind of represented as a refuge, as a place of memory and inspiration. And I, I just want to quote from your book, uh, uh, just to give our listeners a sense of your writing. Um, and I'll just start right now. My reading was interrupted by the sight of two birds sitting on a branch of the eucalyptus tree. I had probably seen them earlier, but did not have the time to pause and observe them. Vinod Kumar Shukla writes in a novel meant for the young and old alike. During childhood, we notice birds a lot. As we grow up, we keep noticing less. We speak while sitting. We mumble to ourselves. We even speak in our dreams. We speak lying down. But the bird of colorful feathers speaks only when it flies. If it sits, it goes silent. The lockdown has returned us to our lost childhood. It has returned us to birds. It has returned us to ourselves. And this nature is clearly in tension with our modernity. And I want to read another part of your writing, which I think demonstrates, demonstrates this quite well and also demonstrates the literary references that you draw from. Charles Baudelaire heralded the modern era in his famous essay of 1863, The Painter of Modern Life. He called modernity an indefinable something, and its exemplary figure someone who is forever quickening his pace. Forever in search, this figure is different from Baudelaire's other celebrated figure of the flaneur, the, the spectator of modern life from the sidelines. The modern self, instead, is looking for a quality it cannot name. Modernity is a name for the unnameable. It is, Baudelaire says the transient, the fleeting. Everyone is rushing towards what is disappearing, rushing towards their own disappearance. And so we see this tension here between nature and modernity, nature returning us to ourselves and modernity causing us to rush towards our own disappearance. Tell us a little bit about this journey you take. You know, you kind of unpeel the many layers of modernity's plaguing of nature. And I just read a little bit, but it would be good to, good to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, as we know that uh, uh, modernity invented nature. I mean, they, I mean uh, it is modern philosophy which tells us about nature from a scientific perspective. So it is actually through science and modernity, through the enlightenment, that we come to know what nature is. They tell us. So in either way, it is not that we were without nature earlier, but modernity tells us of our nature in a sort of new and, and big way. So in a way, uh, what, what I say is that modernity invented nature. But uh, it also, as it invented and told us what uh, nature is and what human nature is, it also added this idea of nature and of human nature being dangerous and being something which needs to be tamed. Because modernity also through through the Enlightenment uh, is a big uh, sort of proponent of the idea of reason. And reason is something human and reason is something uh, which needs to uh, master the world, uh, master the earth, and, and we being human beings who can use reason are the masters of, of the world. Uh, this mastery of the world, which is also related to the idea of self-mastery, but which is not platonic purely in a way, even the play Plato also talked about reason. But here that uh, platonic idea really comes back uh, with, with, with a more uh, objective force uh, and which is also a, sci a scientific force which is about this whole idea which was not there in Plato's time which is this mastery over nature so we had to master our own nature along with mastering nature itself the nature of the world so so that meant that the idea of nature was something dangerous and something that had to be tamed and that sort of creates a very, very troublesome 
you know, dialectic out there in the world and, and even in human in, in modern human civilization. Uh, because uh, this idea has, has sort of, you know, refused to leave us. Uh, it keeps appearing also, you know, in various forms of social and even political codes. Uh, for instance, we know how industrialization, both in Europe and, and then later in, in the uh, post-colonial countries, you know, they attacked the natural world. They, 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 in, in very concrete ways, they attacked the natural world. Forests were plundered uh, in the name of dams, in the name of mining. You know, uh, they are stayed back to mafias, for instance, to, to do this job. So, so what was a philosophical idea, you know, turned into a very, very, you know, brutal... Uh, sort of capitalist idea as as well of 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 profiting from a certain idea of industrialization where where uh, the natural world you know is kind of uh, used for destruction of profit right and and where where uh, the mastery over nat over the natural world then comes to its most crude, crudest form uh in 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 these uh in in these uh, examples right so that is actually created this disturbance a real physical disturbance of of us having really you know plundered uh, the very idea of nature where where not just nature as natural object but also people because so called natural worlds are also pe you know peopled by by communities who who live uh, in 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 these spaces so the way we treat nature is the same way we treat even you know uh, these people who live with nature, right? So so in a way, uh, the whole philosophical project of modernity and its most crudest uh, capitalist project as well, they sort of come together to sort of you know to sort of build this logic into our you know our uh, profiteering uh, sort of mindset that that nature can be you know, used and misused in, in all sorts of ways possible. And we are paying the price for this now. T today, people have, are still waking up, of course, to the idea of the Anthropocene and all of that. And we are more and more in the mercy uh, of, of, of this, this, sort of, uh, this sort of logic. So, so nature became then a thing for exploitation. We, we could exploit nature in the reverse law logic of the fact that nature exploits us so in order to master it, let's exploit it back. So, so this sort of a reverse logic, I, I, I think, has really done a lot of harm uh, for, for us. And uh, so within that logic, you know, somebody like Vinod Kumar Shukla, who you quoted, um, is somebody who's, you know, uh, much more innocent in in his nostalgia of where have these things gone. Um, but but these things have gone because of this very logic, uh, this very modern logic that that, that has made uh, them disappear from our very eyes because, uh, you know, these crude uh, forms of power have been put to place and, and nature has, has sort of disappeared. Speaking of nostalgia, Manash, that was the next theme that I wanted to address, and it's the issue of memory. Um, and, you know, it's clear that these three weeks under lockdown provided you with the opportunity to, you know, as you say yourself in your journal, daydream and scrutinize the past. And in your daydreaming, your memories figure quite prominently, personal memories. And I'd like to read two quotes which I think illustrate the plagues of memory, particularly those of childhood. So this is the first quote. My paradise, Ido, or Garden of Eden, will always remain Shantiniketan, the university town where the poet Ramindranath Tagore founded the Vishwa Bharati, with its green, uneven meadows, tall trees, filtering sunlight, the mina bird, an occasional drove of donkeys, and so much silence that you must scream to know you exist. During summer holidays, we would visit the family of my father's friend in Shantiniketan, while the elders were busy in conversation or singing songs of the goal. I would be in the meadow with I would be playing in the meadow with your daughter, who was a little older than me. We were barefoot like animals. We played hide and seek and catch me if you can. Flirtatious names for games designed for children. We were also on the swing, where with every lunge of the swing, 
I experienced the lunging pits of feeling, just like in A.K. Ramanujan's poem, looking for a cousin on a swing. Since then, I looked for her in every swing. And yet, there is another element of memory which you address, and particularly childhood memories, and I'm going to read a little bit again. Childhood is deceptively simple. Our ties with it become more deceptive as time goes on. As I recall those voices, and the voices you reference are voices of your old childhood friends, on the, as I recall those voices on the phone, I visualized a tunnel where faces were lined up, one behind the other. They were inviting me to join them. It was a tunnel of echoes, and I did not want to enter it. I did not want to lose myself in the echo of voices, each imploring with a touch of paranoia and uncertainty. Hello, hello. I had abandoned my childhood and did not want to revisit it. Very, very contrary and antagonistic notions and competing tendencies with regards to memory and childhood. It seems to be a tortured space. Tell us a little about that. Tell us a little bit about this. Yes, uh, that's an interesting contrast uh, that you have uh, drawn. Uh, uh, because on the one hand, uh, I remember the the idol, um, which is this uh, place in Shantideketan, which I sort of remember as my garden of Eden. And on the other hand, uh, this echo of school schoolmates and, and they're sort of trying to uh, reach me uh, during the lock, lockdown. And uh, there is there, this uh, tension and there's this contrast between the two as well as within, within each of them as well. Uh, in a way, uh, you know, both these statues, idol, and the hollow tunnel, uh, both being memories, of course, are 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 both residues of of time, and and both are tortuous in their own manner. The interesting contrast is that in the case of uh, the the ideal, um, and in the case of uh, thinking back on Shantiniketan, uh, I would say that there is something uh, pleasurable in in thinking about it. The other interesting aspect, of course, is that when I actually, uh, not uh, many, many years ago, I took my friend to uh, that very place uh, where I had been to earlier in my childhood, uh, there uh, I could not, you know, find that place. So that whole meadow, that, that, that whole space we, which I thought was waiting for me to just go back to and show my friend that, look, this is where, this, this is where I spent those lovely moments of my childhood in those spaces had disappeared. Uh, so, so those places were taken over by, by construction, new houses. I just could not find the meadow. So I could not prove to myself or prove to her or prove to anybody in the world, you know, that that place really existed and that my childhood was spent in that place. I was completely thrown out of that place. I was thrown out of my own memory. So it was, in a way, uh, in real life, a very tortuous moment. And yet sitting in my room, of course, uh, I, I could still believe and go back to, to that sort of past. The other past, uh, which is not a, so much about the place, but, but about these people, I was a bit uh, more, uh, disc, you know, the, there was more uh, uh, discordance, if, if I may say, in the very uh, sort of desire to uh, link up to, to that past, because uh, people, of course, change as places also changed. And like I just said, that, uh, that uh, place in memory was no longer uh, the way that I had uh, left it and imagined it. In the same way, people also are, are you know, uh, do not remain the way we remember them. Uh, they ha they also change, and sometimes those changes are disturbing. They no longer reflect or no longer give us that sense of the past, but a sense of of, uh, of the present, which is much more disturbing. There is a certain politics into it because we are adults now, and we all have our ways of you know thinking about the world, and uh, that is where the problem really lies because. 
on the one hand, we of course cannot go back to the past. It is impossible to go back to the past. So that has to be understood. It is really impossible to become the old uh, prince of, uh, of, of childhood, at least for me, who, who, who really believes that, uh, that this whole idea of infantilism, infantilism is, is something which is, you know, a refusal to grow into the world grow up into the world. The world is not um, great. Uh, the world is difficult business, but one does need to grow into it or, or, or grow into the world, so to say. But, um, but there are uh, certain relations where, you know, you do not find that sort of uh, echoing of, of the same kind of process. There, I, I think it becomes difficult to share uh, and uh, and and deal with uh, deal with matters of of your present life. I am trying to be as sort of um, you know abstract as possible because yeah, I don't really perhaps uh, want to go into the specificities of the matter because which is also partly politically you know because uh, see I mean when we are children we have the luxury of in a way you know of not really bothering about. Uh, certain things in the world, in the social world, in the political world, but when when we grow up, and that's what I was actually hinting at, that, that when when we grow up, we are sort of responsible for uh, our views of the world and our views of people, and there um, certain kind of ideas where uh, you you may find that old prejudices are sort of refusing to go or. They are sort of reenacted in 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 your ways of being. So those prejudices, those kind of ideas and views are really difficult to take. So then one feels that okay, you know, it is better to, you know, uh, let uh, the past be in the past and not really, you know, uh, make it meddle in the present. So with these kind of uh, discontinuities, uh, which I have experienced and I can imagine as can happen and it has happened with other people these are the reasons why you know i i would like to then stay away from a certain past as much as possible because where they can where, where they sort of contradict the certain sensibilities of the present thank you manash and you know the, there is there is memory on the personal level and then there's memory at the societal level which you know for the sake of simplicity for our conversation i i will call history and you also, in your journal, seem quite discontented, uh, you know, and you're, you're unhappy with our inability as a species to enrich our collective memories and our histories with a soulful and balanced remembrance of the past. And I'm going to quote a few items to just illustrate the point. Um, you write, if the farmer grows our crops, if workers from factories produce our goods, migrant workers construct our cities. They relay bricks and cement from one person to another over hours. Slowly, over days, the building takes shape. The workers occupy the building till the last job is done. When the building is ready, it is time for them to leave. Their traces vanish from the building. The, occupant, the occupants arrive to lay claim. Months of labor are forgotten. The memories of labor that make our lives possible, that build our homes, are not part of our memory. That was the first quote. And the second quote is the following. We take the everyday for granted. The history of the everyday, as Gandhi said, is never written. We don't write the history of harmony. We write the history, we write of history with a capital H, the history of strife. The history of the everyday is the history of a time that exists in the blurry lines between memory and forgetting. The days we remember are days of events, personal, social, political. You seem to have a real uh, uh, conundrum here with the, with, with the way society chooses to memorialize its past and what it chooses to remember. Tell us a little about a little bit about this. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, with regard to labor, of course, I've laid it out there. It is true that uh, our uh, you know, very everyday simple memory of of life do not sort of uh, 
hold in its in its own privilege the 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 memories that are around us the 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 memories of of people who do certain work who do certain labor um, around us uh, that that sort of you know permanently remains out of our memory that that does not that's not part of our lives uh, so so that is one uh, disturbing uh, aspect of privilege that people keep talking about privilege but this is precisely uh, one important aspect of privilege which is that you don't even see uh, so labor is invisible the memory of labor remains invisible from your own memory so, so that is one one uh, aspect of it uh, which also tells us that this idea of the everyday that Gandhi had eulogized so 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 I'm ambivalent uh, about this idea because on the one hand, we know that the everyday is full of violence. The everyday is the everyday of prejudice. It is not really the idol that, that Gandhi was uh, perhaps trying to sort of imagine. Uh, but uh, perhaps there is something else that Gandhi was also trying to mean um, in contrast to this idea of history where perhaps the idea of every day is not something which we need to necessarily just throw out just because we know for a fact that in real terms the everyday is not outside the history of violence and prejudice and all, all of that but then the everyday which is the everyday of the neighborhood of neighbors where perhaps Gandhi is also trying to draw attention to of the immediate neighbor so these neighborhoods have also sustained us in many ways and perhaps they need to be you know reimagined there are a lot of things that need to change there as well one cannot or shouldn't imagine neighborhoods as something which are there and which need not uh, change and, and there is something very uh, beautiful about them even the neighborhoods of our past if we look back to had a lot of moments where we were uncomfortable about uh, about so many things right so so this everyday life of the neighborhood is also a life of of structural violence and all all sorts of things and yet i think we can perhaps think differently about lost neighborhoods and some of the romance and some of the you know small friendships uh, that 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 we had uh, you know that it enabled and, and helped life uh, to to be and 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 those and and that is the sort of everyday that perhaps you know uh, uh, we can contrast to this sort of a larger idea of history this larger idea of things so for instance the idea of the nation itself the idea of the history of the nation that is a large idea whereas the idea of the neighborhood for instance is is can be contrasted to the idea of of, of the nation. Sometimes, in fact, this larger idea of the nation can come and disrupt small neighborhoods and sort of introduce or reintroduce certain uh, violence in, in them. So that is also something that we can probably uh, think about. And also, uh, the fact that uh, these sort of bigger ideas where, where we see ourselves in terms of or imagine ourselves in terms of larger collectives or collectivities uh, we tend to sort of ignore these these smaller spaces where i think there was often this semblance of intimacy the semblance of simplicity certain values which uh, which can be contrasted to you know a much more aggressive um, consumptive uh, sort of culture that that we are you know more and more ex exposed to into this larger you know when when, when we are thrown into uh, the large spaces of cities we we really lose ourselves we we, we find ourselves lost within these uh, within these spaces probably also because uh, we come from these small neighborhoods and we are people of those neighborhoods and and there's something perhaps to rethink and reimagine uh, about them as well. Thank you, Manash. Uh, for those thoughts. Now, it's also interesting to me how, you know, a human mind in times of leisure wanders, almost inevit inevitably passes through uh, the mysteries of the human heart. And 
you spend some of your writing reflecting on love and friendship. And as usual, you very, very deftly reference two major artistic figures in your contemplation. Um, the first is Michel uh, de Montaigne. Uh, and you write, comparing friendship to love, the popular French Renaissance figure Michel de Montaigne writes, love is more active, more scorching, and more intense but also an impetuous and fickle flame, undulating and variable. Love, Montagna writes, is limited by the fact that it seeks a fleshly end, subject to satiety. In contrast, friendship is general and universal warmth, moderate and even, with nothing bitter and stinging about it. The fever of love is considered absent in friendship. Friendship runs by tempered emotions. Perhaps the crucial difference lies in what Montagna, quoting from Cicero, makes between love and friendship. Love is the attempt to form a friendship inspired by beauty. That's the first quote. And the second one, you know, it, you also draw on uh, a lot from the films of uh, Iranian filmmaker uh, Kiarostami. And you know, there's, there's a part of your book where you describe uh, two characters, Hossein and his love interest, Tahere. And Hossein uh, just pines for and chases after Tahere. And, you know, you describe a scene where we see Tahere accept uh, Hossein's proposal for marriage. And, you know, in, in and this is what you write towards the end of that paragraph. Why does Tahere make Hossein run after her for so long? to see how far he can go to persuade his own heart. It is a moment worth living and dying for. And this was quite interesting to me, because on the one hand, you know, as you were journaling and thinking about Montaigne's take on love and friendship, you found you seem to, you know, really uh, subordinate love to friendship, friendship being a higher, more tempered form. And with as you were viewing Kiarostami's film, um, the realization of romantic love is a moment worth living and dying for. Um, and you seem drawn to the theme of love and friendship again and again as spaces in which to live and meditate during the lockdown. Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about this. Yes, yeah, so I was uh, just quoting uh, Montani's, you know, way of distinguishing between friendship and love, which is, which is uh, interesting. And I think I perhaps might have also added somewhere else that friendship is not always tempered. It also runs through its it, its own sort of uh, fires. But uh, I was not really, you know, hierarchizing them. I, I, I did not mean to say that that friendship is just because it's tempered and all of that, it is sort of higher than love, not at all. Uh, I would say that they are just two very different kinds of uh, emotions, very different kind of feelings, very different kind of relations. One uh, never, in, in, in fact, higher than the other. Love, of course, uh, fulfills some of our most uh, deepest and most intense um, feelings. I, I, I don't think it can be really... Um, you know, compared vis-a-vis uh, -vis anything else. In fact, if I have to really hierarchize the two, I would perhaps keep uh, love, uh, um, you know, even above sort of friendship. But I, I'm not really uh, interested in doing that because I don't believe in that sort of uh, uh, hierarchization of any kind. I and mean, friendship and, and love are both uh, fulfillments of different kinds. And uh, in, in fact, the best uh, love or the best loves are also uh, very good friendships. Uh, so even though of a different kind, but I think we are uh, sort, of, sort of getting slowly and slowly into a much more, you know, sort of um, um, mixed sort of understanding between love and friendship. And uh, it and and that uh, metaphor of uh, the room, of course, is interesting as as rooms to live and meditate, as you have mentioned. Uh, in your question, uh, so yes, so there is in these you know memories of love and memories of friendship. Uh, there is comfort, there is refuge. Uh, it is about what stays and what lasts despite uh, the vacillations and the dictates of time. Uh, 
as we know, there are new diktats in place all over the world, even in many parts of the world, and we need to bridge and negotiate with the, that past and present, that's uh, between the past and present as well. As I had mentioned a little while earlier, when you had asked about the friend, friendships of, of childhood, that how they get into a strain, um, you know, in, in, in current times. And... Um, that also, uh, you know, needs needs to be taken care of because uh, we somewhere need a bridge. We need a bridge between the past and the present and love and friendship are those two bridges uh, through which we can best do that. And um, and both love and friendship, as as we know and as, as we experience, are, are not constant. I mean, despite what Montaigne says, I mean, both love and friendship uh, go through their un uneven phases. And uh, at the end of it, you know, I would say that since uh, neither love nor friendship remains um, unchanged or unchangeable, uh, at, at best today we understand them as a conversation, as a conversation against which is possible, as a possible conversation. Even if that conversation is a harsh one, a difficult one, perhaps it's not a bad idea to risk it, to take it as much as it's possible, as much as you can sort of take it, you know, take the harshness of it as well, because a conversation is uh, one of the best ways in which society, I think, negotiates with difference, negotiates with uh, with the troubles that, that are that our relations uh, throw up. And uh, if, if you haven't, and, and, and in this, and in this uh, conversation, uh, Two things are, of course, most important. Again, two themes which are related to the theme of this book, which you pointed out earlier. One is, of course, time, the whole idea of, of, of time. And the other is the willingness to listen. And because in modern life, one of the things uh, that happens to us is that we are talking all the time. We have our own anxieties and we hardly, uh, barely get time to listen. So I think this willingness to listen is also part of the ethical activity. Uh, of both love and, and friendship as much as it is about this time that we need to give to ourselves and give to the other person so so that we can you know sit and uh, sort of uh, you know talk to each other across the table so for me whether it's love or friendship they hold this 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 similar sort of dilemma and the similar sort of necessity where we need to keep the conversation going love is also a conversation friendship is also a conversation and that is where both you know, are most similar, uh, you know, love, love and friendship. And, and, and for both, uh, uh, we do need uh, to, you know, to, to not, I mean, both friendship and, and, and love, uh, which can, you know, stand over time, uh, which don't break that thread between past and uh, present, uh, which, which don't die. Uh, they are the only rooms in a way, you know, the only rooms that we can breathe in and, and the only rooms that we can sit and talk to each other. Thank you, Manash. Um, you know, I, this has been such a lovely conversation and I, I want to conclude the session by reflecting a little bit, which I think is quite appropriate uh, considering the journal and what we've been discussing so far um, on Camus' quote again. Now, Camus urged us so presciently to keep watch on ourselves and in the final chapter of your journal, um, it, th there's a decidedly pessimistic note. And I think the journal begins with more of a sense of potential for the self, for the human self, and for humanity in general, a potential for reflecting on our failings, for reckoning with our paths to salvation, but it ends on a pessimistic note. And your final chapter sort of covers the fear, the paranoia, the isolation of the pandemic in Delhi, and how it fed into the cruel hierarchies and social lines of Indian society. It really is a sobering and somber read, that final chapter. And, and you, you write, we must be saved from others and ourselves. And so my final question to you is, looking back, have we failed as Camus urging uh, to keep watch on ourselves? Yeah, I think, of course, we need to, to watch our step. Uh, we have often, even without our realizing, stepped into other people's shoes. We have, we have stepped into, you know, things that we shouldn't have stepped into. So we do need to watch our step. 
and uh, so in that sense, uh, Camus is, uh, you know, I mean, we can understand what Camus is saying in terms of holding on, holding back, uh, keeping a watch on, on ourselves, the necessity of it, the demand of it. Uh, but there's also a, the other problem, right? The other problem, which is the vigilance of the self, you know, the extreme vigilance of the self, this paranoia of vigilance, which is something for instance, that Michel Foucault has has written so 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 seriously and deeply and eloquently about telling us, warning us about the sort of effects of this too much of the self-vigilant modern self. So we perhaps need to uh, sort of escape or or be watchful about too much watching of the self as well. You know, so to say. So so we need to watch, keep a watch on ourselves, and and yet we need not perhaps become paranoid, uh, you know, uh, self-vigilant selves where we are constantly in, in vigilating upon, uh, you know, ourselves. And that that also sort of, I think, restricts our spontaneity that will again curb our, uh, our, our desire and our possibility of, of, of speaking and expressing what we are. So, so, so perhaps there needs to be a balance between the, the need and the necessity to to sort of have that watch on ourselves so that we are not really, really stepping out or stepping into something that we uh, don't uh, need to, as well as not become this paranoid self-vigilant self where we are constantly, you know, uh, bothering ourselves about what to say, how to behave, uh, because that might again uh, have a sort of a bad effect on our need to be spontaneous in the world, uh, to express ourselves as deeply and as humanely and as fruitfully as honestly as possible. Thank you so much, Manash, for, uh, for joining us today. Um, and, you know, I hope, I, hope, I hope with all that I've read and quoted from Manash's book that your interests, you know, everyone in the audience, your interests is piqued uh, to pick up the book and to read it because it is most definitely... Uh, deserving of your of your reading time and it is also deserving of a place on your bookshelves uh, and so I, I strongly urge you to go out and get it uh, thank you again Manash for 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 this conversation and uh, to the audience uh, please visit the GTLF 2021 Spotify page to listen to other sessions uh, this is Nitya Mutasami uh, signing off for this session for GTLF 2021 thank you for listening thank you Nitya